Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. So I guess it's happy birthday to me, huh? That it is. That is. You got that coming up, don't you? I do, soon, yeah. So should we get this started? Let's do it. All right. Welcome to episode 62 of Musically Challenge, your heapin' helpin' a music, trivia, and pretty much whatever the hell else we want to talk about this week. A heapin' helpin'. That sounds good to me. I know, right? I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and with me, as always, is Chad Knight. This week, we're going to be paying tribute to someone who's been around for a really long time. He's seen a lot of things here on this time on Earth, some of which man has not been meant to see but is still kicking today, emotional scars and everything. His time here has not been short, and he's got the hair color and creaky bones to back it up. Not saying he's old, but I think he might have been on the way to Bethlehem and got passed by the Magi, but got sidetracked making sandcastles. Now, that being said, who is this mystery man of the ages? He is my friend, he is my cohort, Chad, for his upcoming leveling up. Gamers don't age, FYI, they level up. That is true. And because of which, we're doing something different. Level 42! There you go. So instead of splitting the songs equally, we're still going to do 14 songs, but Chad picked all 14 of them, and I'm going to talk about them, give him a little something-something, and he's going to give probably why he picked them, maybe some memories or whatever the case is. Nope, I ain't saying a goddamn thing. Okay, so <laughs> he did ask these to be done in a specific order, and because he asked nicely and because I'm a benevolent motherfucker, I decided to acquiesce. So, happy birthday, you old goat. Enjoy this week in the spotlight while we get this show started. Woo! So, this is basically just a guest listener exactly. setup. So, I picked them, and unlike most guest listeners, though, I get to have a say. Exactly. But... It's almost like a rebuttal. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> see what you say, and then see how much I need to beat on you. All right, all right. So, now... Even though it's all of Chad's songs, we're still going to be using our rating system, which is the 0 to 10. Oh, Jesus Christ. The 0 absolute shit, kill it with fire before your ears bleed. I will tell you this, I did not rate anything 0. There's 4 of them, right? Yeah, no. 1 to 3 is hard pass, not if we can help it. 4 to 6 is okay, not great, not terrible, we won't change the station, but eh, eh. What we're going to find out really is if, how well I know you, because I have a pretty good idea of what I think you're going to rate these things. I'm intrigued to see what your guesses are. Oh, you're going to make me guess? No, what if you're guessing, and if, you're, oh, okay. if your guesses are the same as my ratings. 7 to 9 is pretty good to great, may have to look for more, and 10 is the unicorn amaze balls. we can't live without it, probably not going to happen in our lifetime. You know, honestly, I picked all these songs, there's not a unicorn on there. You know, and I don't think I could pick 10s, I'll be honest, even if I picked my own list, I don't think, I, I mean, I could pick 9s, yeah, easy. Yeah, So, now, we're going to go ahead and get started, we're going to do just like we always do, where we're going to have to have a beer. Oh, God, I think so. <laughs> so we're going to do Liquored Up. This time I brought a, it's by Saugatuck Brewing Company. It's Blueberry Maple Stout. It's got a kind of crazy looking lumberjack on the cover. And what is... With blueberry can pancakes and a stout beer. Six percent uh, by volume, 26 IBUs, which I know we talked about, but that doesn't mean a goddamn thing to me. Or me. So, want to give it a try? Before we do that, I like this. Right on the label, do you see that? It's got its package date. It's born on date. So oh, my yeah. bottle was 12 21 17. 
And mine was the same. Okay. And that could be because they are not in a 12-pack. It's just those pick individuals. Right. So maybe this was just what it is. Let's do it. All right. I like blueberries. I like stout. Holy maple. Yeah, it is. I like that. Holy maple, Batman. I don't taste the blueberries that much. No, I don't, I don't taste anything blueberry. But I taste very, it tastes like bread, blueberry bread. That's what it tastes like to me. Blueberry bed with a little bit of like coffee-ish almost. You know, on the back end, I can taste the blueberries like sitting there. Mm-hmm. But when you first drink it, it's maple. Maple syrup. And it's and it's stout. It's definitely, it's a very good stout too. Mm. So should we rate this baby? Yeah. Just wait, I need another drink. <laughs> All right. So, what do you think? I think this is an easy thumbs up. I'm not a big dark beer person, but I like this one. I'll give it a thumbs up also. That is that is really good. I like maple, though, so that could be part of it. I do, too. But, I mean, it's... You know, the second drink, the maple's not as strong, which you would expect. Mm -hmm. But it's still there. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Really good. So, so, all right. So, we're not going to go back and forth. I'm basically going to be starting all these. Well, you need to do something first, don't oh, you? Oh, that's right. That's right. we got to do trivia. Yeah. So... I prefaced this earlier when we were coming over here and said that you should get this right. And that if I didn't, he was going to walk out and you won't have next week's episode. And I am standing by that. So you are currently 15 and 16, which means you're just under 500. Yep, yep. The question, which rock star is a board trustee of the Greater Los Angeles Zoo Association, had a defibrillator implant implanted to help control his cardiomyopathy, which is a form of congestive heart failure, mm -hmm. in 2001, quit smoking after his mom died from lung cancer in 2009 and was born Saul Hudson. Do we need to wait to the end or should I just answer that? If you if you know this, go ahead. It's Slash. Did you not know it until the last part? Um, No. Once you said the defibrillator, I pretty much had it. I told you you were going to get this one right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to lie. I did this one, again, like I do with all the trivia questions, it's geared towards whoever either the guest is or whatever the topic is. And I know you're a Guns fan. I am. Which is why I did a question about Slash, because no one wants to know trivia about Axel. Nobody gives a shit. No, Axel's... Axel's... Axel's old news. Not according to him. Well. <laughs> but, but in any respect. So, happy birthday with a win. You're now at 500. And after this, it just gets harder. Not really. Uh, you should be able to get next week's, too, I'm thinking. Okay. Because I've got next week's picked out already, too. All right. All right, so... Again, as we mentioned before, um, as your request, you wanted to go in order and do in chronological. And I did it chronologically just because that's kind of how my music taste developed. Okay. You know, I grew up in an old country household. Right. And then I slowly worked into the rock and roll and then the heavier stuff. And and then the 70s, I got into that real early too because I had an uncle who was big into 70s rock and roll. Okay. So it was kind of a it was kind of a gospel country bluegrass 70s because my uncle lived with us household. So it just depended on who was who was playing music at the time. Yes. That makes sense. So you know, and I'll be honest. I mean, that's how my musical taste kind of came in too. I mean, my dad, my uncle, a couple of other uncles. I mean, you get one side which is you know big southern rock. That would be my dad. He like ZZ Top, Leonard Skinner, things like that. My other uncle was the huge Van Halen fan. Van Halen and Black Sabbath. Those two were my uncle Carl. And then we get my Uncle Brian. He's the one who got me into Rush. Which, not really the hardcore type stuff that, like, Sabbath would be, but it's definitely good rock and roll. I have a love-hate relationship with Rush, to be honest with you. Oh, I it's know. It's just, some of their stuff I really, really like. Oh, yeah. Some of it's, it is just weird as hell. Yeah, some of it's just bad. I, I can say that about... Or I shouldn't even say bad, because it's well it's done. It's not your style. Yes. 
I would say that about Pink Floyd. I would agree with because that. Because Floyd is one where, I mean, like Dark Side, great album. There's a reason it's one of the biggest sellers ever. Right. But I can't listen to all of Pink Floyd's stuff because some of it's just like, uh, no. Some of it got really experimental. And, and that's, that's a lot of the bands in the set between the 70s and the 90s, though. The 60s, 70s, and especially 60s and 70s. The 80s, it was pretty, at least the stuff I listened to was pretty mainline stuff in the 80s. It got very progressive. <laughs> Shout out to Al. <laughs> so, all, all right, right, let's get this thing started. So number one was Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash. Yep. Now, you can see I've got a bit of a write-up. You know, again, too, because it's going to be me doing most of this and you're just going to chime in, we should be okay. But and it was hard to cut down for Johnny Cash's friggin' life. Oh, yeah. Because you get some of the artists that are like, they haven't done, like, for example, who was it? Like ZZ Top, for example. There hasn't been any, like, drug use. There hasn't been any major stuff. So, I mean, I could probably do their life story in, like, half a page. Right. Hank Williams, on the other hand, that was, like, a page and a friggin' half, and that was editing a lot. Right. So, Johnny Cash is kind of the same way. Yeah. So, J.R. Cash was an American singer, songwriter, actor, and author. Started with music when he was just a kid working in the cotton fields in Arkansas. He was a cotton picker. I guess. He'd sing along with the family while he was working and was also taught guitar by his mom and a friend and started to sing and write songs around 12. When he was 18, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force and in his off time created his first band, the Landsberg Barbarians. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That was also when John R. Cash was born. They wouldn't allow him to have um, just initials for his name in the military. Uh, Military life, surprise, surprise, was not for him. So he was and he was honorably discharged in 54 which is when he moved to Memphis, and by day he played, and by night he was with the Tennessee Three. Eventually, he got up the nerd visit Sun Records for a contract, and after much convincing, was pulled in and made his first recording that year. That was also when he started going by Johnny Cash. Okay. His debut album, 1957's Johnny Cash with His Hot and Blue Guitar, was released to positive acclaim and included as singles some of Cash's most well-known songs, I Walk the Line and Fools in Prison Blues. He felt restricted by Sun and left him for Columbia in 58, and he was given freedom to sing pretty much whatever he wanted. It was around that time he got the nickname The Undertaker because he was always wearing black. His response for wearing black was because it was easier to keep clean and he couldn't see the wrinkles. Fair enough. Absolutely. The Man in Black name did come later in the early 70s. Like many musicians, fame came with addiction. He started drinking hard and became hooked on amphetamines and barbiturates, kind of like everybody in the 70s, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um... Shaking up with, or shacking up, I should say, with Waylon Jennings. He was also hooked on speed at the time. That didn't really help anything. He hit his low and turned his life around in early 68. He crawled into a cave trying to lose himself and just die. You know you know how sometimes it's like, I'm just going to crawl into a cave and die. Well, he actually tried to freaking do that. Right, right. Now, the story goes that he passed out and felt God's presence in his heart, and that helped him get in, get out of the cave and kick the drugs. It was shortly after that, in February of 68, when he proposed to June on stage in Ontario. Part of the Walk the Line movie, I think, that they made a pretty big issue with. He didn't stop using, though, until in 1970, supposedly spurred on by his son's birth. He was on again, off again with amphetamines, which started again in 77 all the way up till 1992. His own stuff wasn't going very well in the early 80s, so he and a few other outlaws of the country formed the supergroup The Highwaymen, which was Chris Chris Christofferson. Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. A few successful tours with them and a couple unsuccessful runs on his own, and he started to have a bit of a decline, but got a surge into popularity in the 1990s. 
during the time he collaborated with other artists such as U2 and Tom Petty to release music, but the end was nearing. He was diagnosed with shy Drager syndrome, which is a neurodegenerative disease. God damn, that's a hard word to say. Yeah. Um, in 97, which was earlier misdiagnosed as Parkinson's. He continued to record and release some of his most notable recent cash material, one prime example being the cover of Nine Inch Nails' Hurt. Which almost went on this list. You know, and actually, you can see the, sh- the goosebumps that came up because I'm thinking of that song, and I even wrote, God just typing that brought shivers because it is such a moving song. It really is. And, and it almost made the list, but I'm like, for you, me, Johnny Cash is still... Old school. Old school. Makes sense. As much as I love Hurt... It just didn't fit in the list. Now, if I made another list in a year, it may be on there. There you go. Now, June died in 2003, but told him to keep on keeping on, basically. He recorded sixty more than 60 songs in the last four months of his life, and then on September 12th in 2003, he finally passed away. Johnny Cash released 55 studio albums in his career that spawned 165 singles, 13 of which went number one. Now, before we start talking about Folsom Prison, that one... Folsom Prison Blues. Let's take a quick listen to it. I hear the train a coming. It's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. And time keeps dragging on. Now, this is a single again off of 1957's Johnny Cash and his Hot and Blue Guitar album. It's a pretty perfect country song if you go by David Allen Coe's definition because it mentions three of the five necessary tropes to be a country song. It talks about mama, trains, and prison. All jokes aside, it's a great song. Um, Cash had such a strong and recognizable voice that's just really entertaining to listen to. Even non-country fans can appreciate Cash and his material. I give this one a 7. Okay. Now, Johnny Cash. To me, Johnny Cash is the embodiment of classic country. You know? Even surpassing, like, Hank Williams? <sighs> and, and, like, George Jones and some of those other ones? No, but I would I would put him in that okay, group right. of people. Okay, Okay. Just clarifying. Okay, fair enough. Now, if you look at the back of my van, I've got three bumper stickers. Oh, I'm like, like what, what, what van? You got a, you got a, like a, a kidnap van? I didn't know about. What the hell? <laughs> okay, my SUV. Sorry. All right, thank you. There is, there's two Cthulhu bumper stickers, and an American Rebel Johnny Cash bumper sticker. And then, of course, I've seen the one with the, it shows him with giving the finger and everything else, and because that's. Oh yeah, those are my daughter actually bought her that shirt, and she refuses to wear it. Why? It's hilarious. I know. <laughs> but you know, Johnny Cash is just one of those artists that I have liked forever. It's always been in you know my repertoire of music that I listen to, mm-hmm. and it's just one of those things that I just. To me, that that's country music, you know. Do you know who got you into Johnny Cash? My dad. Okay. Absolutely. My dad was a big old country music guy. When I was growing up, we had 45s. Tons and tons oh, of Oh, those little bastards? Yeah. <laughs> the little frisbees? Yeah. We had tons and tons of 45s. And I remember thinking that some of the neatest ones were the Johnny Cash ones, and then um, Patsy Cline. Okay. And, you know, things like that. And then there was like there was like a few that would slip in there. There was a couple Elvis, a couple Buddy Holly and the Crickets kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. it was mostly country music. Sure. And then my mother was a huge fan of gospel music, so we had a lot of... Um, well, I had some Elvis with that, too, then. Yeah, well, yeah. But uh, what was her name? Um, anyway, I can't remember the name of the woman, but she had, like, tons of stuff from this lady. Okay. You know, and, and so that, to me, that right there is a good chunk of my childhood. Okay. So, a seven, huh? I, uh, 
You weren't expecting me to go that high, were I you? Wasn't, no, I was thinking more along five or six, but... So you underestimated me. A little bit, yeah. All right. Um, you may be surprised by the end of this all. So if you had to rate this one on your 10, what would you give this one? Oh, um, Kieran, I thought you were going to already do that. No, I wasn't. Um, I was. Uh, I would give this a solid 7, maybe a low 8. Okay. All right, so should we move on? Yeah. Next, we have the aforementioned Patsy Klein. Now, Virginia Patterson Hensley. God, what a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I'd go by Patsy Klein too. Absolutely. Known as Patsy Klein was an American country music singer, not songwriter, not author, not actress. She was a singer, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. Her upbringing wasn't a good one. Her family moved around a bunch, and at age 13, she had throat infection and rheumatic fever that actually, when it healed, gave her that booming voice. It's like get, getting mutant powers. Yeah, yeah. It's like she's, she's an X-Man. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Now, Dad deserted when she was 15, but supposedly the house was a happy one anyways. Um, she didn't go to high school, opting to help the family out as a soda jerk, which is where she got her big music bug. It was right across the street from a radio station where she saw where she saw performers and eventually went on to the radio herself. Her first Yeah, li- I think, you know, one thing that I don't think a lot of people understand, that it was in the early days, a lot of times... Radio stations would have a what they call the house band, and that band would come in and do music during times when they didn't have other music to play. Oh, I suppose, yeah. Or if they didn't want to play the same record over and over and over again. Did you see um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I have heard that's an amazing soundtrack. I've not seen it or oh. heard it. Oh, you you got to take the time. All right. I'll and put that on my list. Well, maybe we'll have to put that on our list of movies we have to watch. We'll add it to the list. We're going to have like a year where we're just like, we're not working. We're watching movies. Yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to take our sabbaticals and be like, what are you doing? Watching movies. But um, in that movie, they kind of highlight that because George Clooney and his group, they show up at this radio station and the guy's like, you can sing? And they're like, yes, sir. And they're like, and he's like, and this is kind of, I mean, you got to remember the time this took place was in the 20s. They're like, he's like, you got any black guys in your band? And there was one black guy with them. And they're like, no, guy was blind. <laughs> so he's like, okay. And he just put him on the air, not knowing if they could sing, not knowing if they could play. Better than dead air. I, I guess. <laughs> so her first label got her in the door, but was stifling as she couldn't do her own material, but rather had to record theirs, which according to Decca later on, limited her potential. In the mid-1950s, she saw a bit of a downturn in popularity, but after signing with Decca in the 60s, things turned back up. She was huge in the Nashville scene and got into the Grand Ole Opry as well, releasing releasing one of her biggest hits, I Fall to Pieces. Due to a near-fatal car accident, she wasn't able to ride the wave of momentum with the song, but instead presented with Willie Nelson Penn's song, Crazy, which exploded both OP and country charts. Mm-hmm. She, continued re- she continued to recover, tour, and record, becoming one of the first female country artists to headline her own show and having billing above the male stars that she toured with. Pretty impressive for, for a lady oh, yeah. at that time. Especially, yeah, especially then. She wanted to take a breather in hiatus, but her manager wouldn't allow it, insisting to strike when the iron was hot. She reinvented her style and worked with updated instruments and tried going with a more feminine image that most remember her for, like with the cowboy outfits and with the right. tassels and everything. March of 63 would be her the final time for Pat's decline. After a few performances, she insisted on flying home instead of driving, and that would be her final trip. The plane crashed and Patsy Cline perished. Roger Miller and a friend helped search for survivors but didn't find any. Shortly after the bodies were removed, the site was looted and some recovered items eventually were donated to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Patsy Cline released quite a few singles but only three studio albums in her entire lifetime. Additional material was released posthumously. Now, I don't think I ever said the title of what the song was, but it's San Antonio Rose. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Moon and all your splendor, no 
Now, the song was written by Bob Wills, Willis and his Texas Playboys in 1940 and later covered by Patsy Cline. I know you like Patsy Cline, and at least this one's an upbeat song because her other stuff is sad and just sad. <laughs> it's sad and it's, just sad. She's got a good voice for the genre. The song would definitely fit in at Bob's Country Bunker, right after Stand By Your Man, of course. Right. That said, I am not a fan. She's a legend. The song is not. Okay. Actually, that's a little higher than I thought you'd be on that song. Okay. I like this one actually better than I would have liked like Crazy and I Fall to Pieces because of the upbeat manner of it. Okay. Now, Patsy Cline is one of those one of those performers, and I don't know why, but from the very first time I heard her voice, I was hooked. You know? There's that, there's that hook, and it grabs you, and it's like, eh, you know? I'd be intrigued to hear what her voice was like before she got the, the sickness that boomed it up. Well, and we'll never know. Well, no, but I mean, obviously, this is just kind of interesting if right. for that thought. No, I, I, I get where you're going with that, but Patsy Cline, my dad was a big fan of Patsy Cline. My mother was a big fan of Patsy Cline, so. Something they could agree on? Yeah. We, we, there was a lot of Patsy Cline in the house, and, you know, San Antonio Rose is probably not my favorite one of her songs, but we had already done Crazy, mm-hmm. and I knew exactly how you would react to I, <laughs> I Fall to pieces, pieces, right? So I was like, I'm going to go for something else. And I went for something that was a little more upbeat, something that was a little more, you know, she was, it, during this time, she was in that country outfits and the tassels and the yep. hats and the and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It's just one of those performers that they just kind of grab you and they're like. Always sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah. And and strangely enough, I, I found a picture of Patsy Cline when I was doing some research for, for an earlier episode. And there's a picture of her. And I remember seeing pictures of my aunt when she was young, like, you know, high school age or whatever. Scary? Scary how much they look alike. Yeah, so. So what would you say on this one, Andre? I'd give this one a six. Okay. And this is one where paring it down was difficult as hell. And this is still after paring it down. And that is going to be While My Guitar Gently Weeps by The Beatles. I knew you were going to get a Beatles in here, at least one. Oh, God. I mean, Par- really? I, I, really? Have, I have to say this, though. I don't envy you because I, as much of a fan as you are for the Beatles, this must have been heartbreaking trying to pick one no. song. Nope. Really? That was right away. That was the one. No kidding. That is my favorite Beatles song. Okay. And you might be surprised to hear what I have to say about it. Okay. Well. But we'll see. So. I'm ready for the whipping boss. <laughs> it's, it's higher than Patsy Cline. Well, that's good. Now, the Beatles, and I'm, most people already know who the Beatles are, but this is going to be kind of a recap. I'm going to probably cut a few things out. So, the Beatles were a Brit rock band formed in 1960 by Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and John Lennon. Collectively, they became known as the... Sort of. Well, yeah, there's more in there, but... Collectively, they were known as the Fab Four and were pioneers in some of the biggest innovators of rock music. Lennon formed a skiffle group in 57 shortly after McCartney joined. Uh, McCartney invited George Harrison to watch and his playing impressed Lennon, but they didn't invite him because he was only 15 and, finger quotes, too young. Yeah, they were all 16 and 17. Right. Stuart Sutcliffe joined in 60 and they changed their name to the Beatles, B-E-A-T-A-L, as a tribute to Buddy Holly and the Crickets, which evolved to the Silver Beatles, but then turned to the Beatles. They played out of Hamburg and gained popularity in Liverpool, but tired of the same clubs over and over. That is when they encountered Brian Epstein who helped polish the group and signed him to the major label, George Martin's EMI Parlophone. Is that how you say that? Yeah, I believe so. Now, Sutcliffe passed in April. Pete Best was a current drummer who was replaced in August of 62 by Ringo Starr, who left the, a different band to be part of the Beatles, which is probably one of the best decisions that he's ever made. Yeah. They had their first recording session at the legendary Abbey Road, and 
and that was in 62, which would give them the hits Love Me Do, Please Please Me, and P.S. I Love You. Did you did you put what band that uh, Ringo played for before the Beatles? I did not, actually. It was Jerry and the Pacemakers, which had their own career that was actually pretty big as well. Pretty solid, but not Beatles solid. No, not definitely not. I but, mean, let, let's think about this here. But I, No, but what I'm saying is when the Beatles approached him... He had a much better gig with Jerry and the Pacemakers. And that's got to take some brass balls. I mean, as a, like a 16 or 17-year-old being like, oh, okay, let's do it. And yeah. best thing he could have done. Yeah. So let's see here. Where were we now? With the release of their second album, 1963's Please Please Me, Beatlemania was officially kicked off. After a slight image change suggested by Epstein, stop smoking, stop swearing, stop eating on stage, which seems pretty logical if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, but the, the boys were wild in the early days. Yeah. The guys kept recording and major touring. They finally made the hop across the pond in 64 and were greeted in, at JFK Airport by screaming, weeping fans and did the Ed Sullivan show a couple days later, which everybody knows that. You've seen the clips. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, if you could pick two music clips from Ed Sullivan, it's that and Elvis. Yeah. Probably the top two right there. And the Doors one, just because Jim Morrison pretty oh, much gave him the big old finger. With the She Got High thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's see here now. Even though the um, reception was mostly negative, the British invasion, including the Dave Clark Five, the Kinks, the Animals, and the Rolling Stones, had become had begun, I should say. During the week of April 4th, the same year, Beatles held 12 spots in the Billboard Hot 100, including the top five. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. People liked them. They really, really liked them, apparently. Yeah. You know what I never understood about the Beatles, though? Was, was the weeping and the screaming and the crying. And I, the... We're, but we Michael could... Jackson, too. Yeah. And I didn't understand it then, either. Yeah. Well, they continued recording and touring at a furious pace and were controversially appointed the MBE, the members of the Order of the British Empire, by QE2 in 1965. The band did a couple movies and accompanying soundtracks, which were rife with controversy in the mid-60s, first by snubbing First Lady Imelda Marcos for breakfast, which actually caused riots. They almost died in the Philippines. Um, Lennon made some anti-religious comments about Christianity, which led to Beatles records being banned in the Bible Belt of the U.S. Well, you know, uh, we're bigger than Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's Kanye. But <laughs> No, that was John. I'm being facetious. Oh. They embarked on their final tour in August of 66, right after Revolver was released. Since touring was done, they tried more experimental stuff, which led to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sold well, but people were wondering, and the clean slate came later with 1968's The Beatles, a.k.a. The White Album. All wasn't sunshine, though, as riffs were growing. Ringo was in and out, leaving remaining members to fill in with him. Lennon was getting all Yoko'd. And bringing her everywhere she went, even though there was an established rule that said no girlfriends. They weren't recording Beatles music anymore. Per Lennon, every track is an individual track. John in the band, Paul in the band, George in the band. They soldiered on and released a couple more albums, 1969's Abbey Road and 70's Let It, Let it Be, before actually officially breaking up. Paul McCartney filed suit for disillusion in December of 1970, but wasn't actually finalized until Lennon signed off in December of 74. It's like the divorce papers that he just wouldn't sign that bastard. Yep. Just, just initial here, here, sign there, right. initial here, and he's like, no. So all members did their own thing and recorded solo work as well as being part of other bands, such as Paul McCartney and Wings in 71 through 81. Lennon was murdered by Mark David Chapman in 1980. Harrison died from lung cancer that spread in 2001. Ringo Starr and McCartney are still going strong. Also, finally, in 2017, Paul McCartney reclaimed ownership on the share of the Lennon-McCartney song catalog to begin in 2018. Good for him. Yep. The Beatles released 23 studio albums that spawned 63 singles and are the best-selling band in history with an estimated of over 800 million physical and digital albums overwide. Take that in. Nearly a billion. That is a buttload of albums. Oh, yeah. I mean... 
it's unreal. You know, they talk about some of the best-selling artists of all time. We've, we've used that line before in other artists, too, where they have 130, 150 million. And that's still a huge amount, but and nearly it is. a billion. Yeah, it's just with it's amazing. Right. While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Should is, we listen to it? Yeah, we'll listen to it quick. Now, this is a George Harrison Penn song off the White Album and supposedly serves as a comment on the disharmony within the Beatles. And you can hear the lack of camaraderie in the music. I don't get it, but whatever. Harrison invited his buddy and occasional collaborator Eric Clapton to play on the recording. He overdubbed lead guitar but wasn't formally credited. This one almost doesn't even sound like the Beatles to me. I mean, it sounds more polished, refined, and the instrumentals just sound better to me. Maybe Harrison should have written more songs? He actually, he, he was given one song per album. And I really appreciate this one. Actually, this I'm almost kind of wondering if this might become one of my favorite songs as well, actually, of okay. the Beatles. Gave it a six. Okay. I don't know. I, you know, honestly, I don't know where I would have put you on that one. So. Well, I can say, okay, here's my guess, at least. On the Beatles aspect, you would have probably expected me to rate it low because it's the Beatles, but on the musical aspect, maybe a little bit higher because of the music. Right, yeah. Now, it doesn't sound like a Beatles song. You're absolutely correct in that. I mean, it sounds more like something that... Uh, you know, uh, it sounds ahead of its time. It sounds like something George would have put out later. Okay. You know, it, this song, and I don't know why, but it has been my favorite Beatles song for as long as I can remember. It's just the one that somehow calls out to me. The Beatles, as we've done this over the over the year and and plus, I kind of have a love hate relationship with the Beatles. Really, that I surprises do. me. I do because some of their stuff. I.e. Revolver, I.e. you know certain albums out there. It's hard to stick up for. <laughs> it's hard to stick up for. Um, the Beatles really are not my type of band. I mean, if you look at everything else I listen to, mm-hmm. and then there's the Beatles. They're over here somewhere. They're like the uncle that you love because you have to love, but it's they're not like immediate family. <laughs> right. And the, and the funny thing is that they were such a mainstream band. Oh yeah. That. Me to actually like them to the degree that I do is odd in and of itself. You know, um, other than the 80s, I really kind of stuck away from the mainstream. But this song, I don't know why it calls to me. Uh, I'm probably going to say that a lot tonight. Fair enough. I don't know why it calls to me, but there's just something about it that, you know, the way it's sung, George's, George's vocals on this one are just amazing. And I just think it's probably the best fully, you know... <laughs> You were reading the thing about you can't you can't hear the camaraderie or anything like that, and I'm like, well, there's nobody yelling in the background. Well, yeah, they're not bitching each other. Like, God damn it, play it right. I got a blister on my finger, you know, kind of thing. Right. And it it, it was it was more refined, it was more polished. It just I don't know, it called me. I give this an eight. That's actually just what I wrote too. I'm starting to get to know you. Well, I would hope so after this amount of time. Yeah. All right. All right, what's next? Because I forgot. Next, we've got I'm 18 by Alice Cooper. Oh, yes. So Vincent Damon Fernier, best known as shock rocker Alice Cooper, is an American singer, songwriter, and actor who's been going for a long-ass time. 50 years. Quite a while. Yeah. Dad was an evangelist, so he was around music for a really long time. In his high school yearbook, he mentioned his ambition was to be a million record seller. Done. (laughs) All right, what do we do for the next million? Right. I'm guessing that means he didn't work for Camelot Music or Best Buy, so he would have to do it the hard way and actually record music. <laughs> so 
he had a few cross-country teammates to form a band in 1964. I can't see him as being an athlete, to be quite honest. Huh? He's not in bad shape. I mean, no, I mean he's not. But at the same time, I don't see him running track. Can you, can you just imagine? I mean, granted, he didn't have the makeup and everything. But just can you imagine him with like the leather jacket? He'd be like Danny Zuko in Greece. He wasn't 70 though either. That's this is true. <laughs> His first band in '64 was called the Earwigs, and he was 16 years old. Good f- feedback kept them, and they became Cooper's first band, the Spiders. They recorded a bit and changed their name to Naz. Later, finding out that Todd Rundgren also had a band of the same name. That prompted them to rethink their stage image, and that's when Vincent became Alice Cooper. After a meeting with Frank Zappa in 1969's Chicken Incident in Toronto, a chicken made its way onto the stage and feathers... Okay, the chicken made its way onto the stage in the feathers of a feathery pillow that they opened with during the performance. Cooper, not knowing it was actually chicken, presumed it could fly and hucked it out in the crowd, expecting it to fly away. The crowd took it and tore it to pieces. The next day in the national newspaper reported that he bit the head off the chicken and drank its blood on stage. Frank Zappa called Coop to verify and Coop's like, no. And and Zappa's like, whatever you do, don't tell anyone that you did not do that. Fair enough. (laughs) So meanwhile, they were releasing albums to very little acclaim. 1969's Pretties for You, 70's Easy Easy Action did pretty much nothing. Cooper's third album, 1971's Love It to Death, was where they finally broke through, reaching 35 on the charts. The band continued recording and touring, increasing the shocking stage show with electricity, no pun intended, and guillotines. The Alice Cooper band ended, and he went solo as Alice Cooper to avoid confusion, and before releasing 1975's Welcome to My Nightmare. It wasn't all great, though, as he was a total drunk, reporting drinking two cases of Budweiser and a bottle of whiskey a day. That's a lot of booze. That it is, yeah. Once he finished the 77 tour, he checked himself in for treatment and sobered up. His next album was 78's From the Inside, which was co-written by Bernie Taupin. Did not know that. It was semi-autobiographical. Sobriety was not to be had, though, as he regressed in 83 and was hospitalized for alcoholism and cirrhosis. He sobered up again, this time for good. Took some personal time off, returned to music in 1986 with Constrictor, which spawned a song that was used for the theme song for Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. He continued to tour and record, as well as act occasionally being a guest star in That 70s Show, which was awesome, by the way. Yes, yes. And a prominent character in Wayne's World, which another one which was awesome. Yeah, yeah. In 2004, he started a radio show, Nights with Alice Cooper, that's still going. And I, on three different stations, I still listen to that. Yeah, I listen to it on occasion as well. Um, in 2010, he toured with Rob Zombie on the Gruesome Twosome, on the Gruesome Twosome Tour, which would have been freaking awesome to see. Yeah. Um, been working with modern and classic rock artists today. Since inception, he's released 27 studio albums as recently as July of 17 and has spawned 80, I'm sorry, 48 singles. And I'm 18 is a single off of 1971's Love It to Death when they were still the band Alice Cooper. Let's go ahead and take a listen. I'm in the middle without any plans. I'm a boy and I'm a man. I'm 18 and I don't know what I want. 18. Now it's a bit of coming of age anthem that's about growing up in the 60s. 18 was old enough to be drafted by the military to go to Vietnam, but you had to be older to drink and vote. Most states used 21 as the drinking and voting age. Little history lesson, the 21st Amendment, was, uh, which repealed prohibition, stated most states used 21 old to drink. The 26th Amendment, lowering the voting age to 18 from 21, was in 71. In Wisconsin, for example, here's how liquor, liquor ages went. In 33, it was 18 for beer, 21 for harder stuff. Then in the 70s, it was lowered to 18 for everything. In the 80s, it was raised, first to 19, then 21, and that's where we're at today. 
the song itself, it's just a good, dark, gritty song. It's a classic song about a guy who's a boy and who's a man. Yeah. And there's really not a lot to say about it. Uh, it's a six. Okay. This song, I mean, you and I can uh, appreciate this song. Because when you turned 18, you could vote. You could go die for your country. But you couldn't have a beer. Unless it was still with your parents. Well, at that time, yes. But well, right. Now you can't even do that. I mean, technically you can, but most bars won't do it because they don't want to take the liability of it all. Well, that's when your parents just bring it home and drink with them. <laughs> but moving on. But this song is just one of those songs um, that I just fell in love with when I was, you know, maybe 20, 21, somewhere in there. It was just, it calls to that part of you that's just like, Argh! It's it's a rebellion thing, you yeah. Know, it's 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 an anthem. It's a rebellion, like was mentioned too. Doesn't exactly go for everybody, but for for us, I think it does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I give this a seven. And that is what I wrote as well. Well, look at you. I know. I'm guessing great. Hey, you got your trivia question right tonight. I'm getting these right. Woo! All right. So next we've got Aqualong by Jethro Tull. This is a dark fucking song. Yeah. <laughs> so Jethro Tull is a Brit progressive rock band that formed in 19 yes al i like jethro tell <laughs> rock band formed in 1967 of ian anderson jeffrey hammond and john evan and that is one of the bands if not the absolute band that popularized rock flute they attended school together and were fans of the beatles growing up uh, they played local clubs when they were in their late teens basing out of london they had a few member shakeups and officially formed on december 20th of 67 in the beginning they had a rough time trying to secure gigs and kept changing their name they were now named after an 18th century agriculturist by a booking agent, staff member, and it just stuck because it was the first time that they were actually invited to return, which is actually kind of funny. You know, hey, it works. Bring them back. <laughs> Their big break came at the National Jazz and Blues Festival at Sunbury on Thames. Thames? Thames? On the Thames, yep. In 1968, and later that year they released their first studio album, 1968's This Was, where it peaked at number 10 on the UK charts and 62 in the U.S., they experimented with different types of music, all while recording and having band members come and go. Through their releases, they finally got to 1971's Aqualong that critics wouldn't shut up about being a concept album, and that really pissed off Ian Anderson. He did not like the fact that they were calling him a concept. Really? So what did he do? He decided to come up with something that was really the mother of all concept albums, and between the Monty Python influence and idea, ideality of wanting to combine complex musical ideas with enough of a sense of humor to poke fun at the band, audience, and critics... 1972's Thick as a Brick was released, where it went straight to number one, this thus being known as a prog rock band up until the late 70s when they started to release folk rock albums. They returned to their hard rock roots with 87's Crest of a, Crest of a Knave, which won the 1988 Grammy Award beating out Metallica's And Justice for All. I remember that, because Metallica was best. It was hilarious. They continued to tour and record, even doing a Christmas album in 2003, so apparently it's not just country artists who have to do Christmas. No, no, everybody does Christmas. They took a hiatus in 2012, but then for the band's 50th anniversary, came back together and started touring again and are still active today. Jethro Tull has released 21 studio albums that have spawned 33 singles, and per Ian Anderson on JethroTull.com, he was, quote, in the studio working on a new album for release in March of 2019. Shh, keep it a secret. I think he either Instagrammed it or something else, too. Yeah. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to Aqualung. Down his nose. Greasy pig 
So Aqualunga is a single off of the 1971 album of the same name. The song talks about an old homeless man named Aqualung. That's just gross. I mean, really, it's just disgusting. It's creepy as fuck. Right. Depending on who you listen to, it could be a guilty or insecurity or just a picture model of modern homeless population. What do I think? You don't care. I don't care. That's exactly right. In fact, it even says pause for Chad's response. Now, I remember at the MC, Brian was huge on playing Tall in the Union. Mm -hmm. Like, huge. It was just like, who the hell is Jethro Tall and why are you playing this bastard? Because it was either Beatles because of Jerry or it was Tall because of fucking Brian. It makes me wonder if this was where you first came to get your appreciation of the group. Now, Tall is a very unique group. The sound is good. The musics are a bit icky. And I have to say I prefer other songs by their catalog. It's still a decent song, though. I give it a six. Okay. So Aqualung is a creepy-as-fuck song about an old homeless guy who's checking out little kids in a park. With snot dripping down his nose. Yeah. Well, he's coughing up his lung, too. So, you know, obviously he's got some sort of something going on. Right. But uh, I don't know why I like this song. Because you listen to it, and it kind of gives you that, like... That little body shake of that little... Because the music is good, the lyrics are terrible. The music is amazing. And actually, if you don't... You almost have to listen hard to hear the lyrics to a certain degree in certain parts of it. Kind of, yeah. So maybe that's why. Maybe it's just an appreciation of the music. Because the music is amazing. Okay. But um, I I like Jethro Tull. And I was going through my notes. Because the way I did this... And I don't know if I told you this. But what I did is I started out writing out bands. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this band needs to be on there. This band needs to be on there. Okay. And Tull made the list. Well, Tull made the cut, actually, because the list was longer than 14. Yeah. <laughs> it's, what's your favorite song, dude? It's like asking which is my favorite kid or yeah. movie. It's just not going to happen. Exactly. And so then I'm going through the songs, and I'm like, you know, I could do this. I could do Thick as a Brick. I could do you know, all these different ones. And I'm like, you know, Aqualung is kind of the one that kind of, to me, is the one I always go back to. And I don't okay. know why. And I think it's the music now that, now that I'm sitting here verbalizing it. Right. Um, I give this one a six. Okay. He's a savant. No shit, right? All right. So now we're going to move on. We're going to go to the next year because that was 1971. We're moving yep. up to 1972 with Tiny Dancer by Elton John. Oh. Yeah. Reginald Kenneth Dwight, a.k.a. Elton John, is an English singer, pianist, and composer. Pianist. Shut up. <laughs> You're 42, for Christ's sakes. I'm not yet. I'm still 41 for two weeks. So he started playing piano at age three and by four was already playing by ear. Remember we talked about those classical guys that were ahead of their time? Yeah. God damn it. Elton John is, I mean, if you read his story, you you know his history. Oh, the guy's incredible. Yeah. His formal lessons didn't start until he was seven and went to play for the Royal Academy of Music on a junior scholarship. When he, was, when he stated he wanted to pursue music, it was his father, who was a flight lieutenant in the RAF, tried to steer him away from it and told him to get a real job, even though mom and dad were both musically inclined. Kind of pot in the kettle type thing, you know? And his dad was or, semi-professional. Or, or don't do as I do, you know, do as I say Well, his thing. dad was semi-professional. Well, yeah, I think it was, what, trombone, I think? Something like that, but his band played for a lot of the RAF stuff. Right. Now, he started playing at a nearby pub to help earn money for the family, and in 67, the magic singer-songwriter duo of Elton John and Bernie Taupin was formed. They collaborated on the first duo song, Scarecrow, and within six months of meeting, Dwight was going by Elton John in honor of saxophonist Elton Dean and vocalist Long John Baldry. He legally changed his name to Elton Hercules John in in January of 1972. John released his debut album, Empty Sky, in 69, and the following year released his self-titled Elton John in 70. 
He continued to tour and record, releasing under DJM until forming his own label, Rocket Records, in 74, which all of his most all but his most four recent albums are on his own label. He continued to record for his own albums as well as many notable soundtracks, such as a little animated film called The Lion King. Yeah, I think I've heard of that one. Yeah, and has been a huge voice for LGBT rights. He announced in January of 2018 that he'll be retiring from touring soon and would be doing a three-year farewell tour, starting with the first date in Allentown, Pennsylvania in September of 2018. He stated, 10 years ago, if you asked me if I would stop touring, I would have said no. But we have children, and that's changed our lives. I've had an amazing life and a career, but my life has changed. My priorities now are my children, my husband, and my family. Solid answer, and while touring may end, I doubt that he's going to stop recording and releasing music. Because I, I don't think he can. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. He's one of those artists that it's just going to keep coming until he's pushing up daisies. Right. Now, Elton John's released 30 studio albums in his career and has sold more than 350 million albums throughout the world. Tiny Dancer, let's take a quick listen. Now, Tiny Dancer is a Bernie Taupin lyric song that was released in, on 1971's Madman Across the Water and as a single in 72. Taupin stated he wrote the lyrics to capture the spirit of California in 1970, encapsulated by the many beautiful women he met there, and the song was dedicated to his first wife, Maxine Feibelman. The song was a good song on its own, but got new life when it was included in the 2000 film, Almost Famous, and is known for having some of the most hilarious misheard lyrics of all time. Hold me close, Tony Danza. Yeah. Can't help but LOL on that one, really. Uh, Tiny Dancer's a great song, and is it's done by a master of the trade. Billy Joel may be the piano man, but personally, I think Elton John is the true piano maestro. I gave this one a 7. Okay. Now, Tiny Dancer, I just I love this song, and I probably heard it throughout my you know childhood, early teen years, but I really didn't get into it till Almost Famous. Love that movie. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I have not. I will borrow you that one. I own it. Okay. It is. It's. It's a great movie. Um. And and that's where I really got into that song. And as much as I like a lot of Elton John's songs, I never really got into Elton John per se. You know, people were paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars to go see a, a show, and I always thought oh, that guy's kind of full of himself to be charging you know five hundred dollars to to see a show. So I never really got into him. Um. But he's always been around because Nicky's a big Elton John fan mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But this song, it just, I don't know. There's just something about the melody. There's something about the way he sings that just calls to me. I, I love this song. Um, it is probably in my top 20 all-time oh, really? songs. So, I mean, there's there's other Elton John songs in there, um, but this would definitely be in there. It, it, it's up there. This is an 8 for me. Okay. I, I would have said a 7, so... Um, I will say I did see Elton John live. Okay. In fact, it was the night before I saw ACDC. Okay. Because of ACDC scheduling later. And it was a three-plus-hour concert, no opening act, and it was well worth it. I would highly recommend it. It wasn't cheap. I think it was like 100 bucks a person. But being as how he is getting out of it now, it is well worth it. If you get the chance and can afford it, definitely see Elton John live because okay. he puts on a killer show. So what we got next? We're going to go with a little Pink Floyd and money. Cha-ching! 
Yes, exactly. Now, Pink Floyd was a Brit rock band founded by Roger Waters and Nick Mason. They met while in school, along with the future members of the band, played in many bands and changed their names a lot of times, actually, playing in the underground scene before the final lineup was born. It was in late 1965 when they were officially known as Pink Floyd, a name created by guitarist Sid Barrett deriving by using the names of two bluesmen he had records for, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. They started playing mostly R&B, which surprises me for Pink Floyd, but through time phased that out for more Barrett originals, and through the UFO Club in London, they started getting a foothold and a following. They signed with EMI in 67 and released their first studio album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, where it peaked at number 6 in the UK and 131 in the US. Barrett, however, was having mental issues, and David Gilmore was adding, and David Gilmore was added to help cover for the Barrett's issues, and finally in 68, Barrett agreed to leave. Through the, their next few albums were good releases, however, there was speculation that they were not the same type of band without Barrett, though that was put to bed permanently with the release of 1973's Dark Side of the Moon, still one of the best-selling albums of all time. I know I own a copy on CD. I'm pretty sure some of the listeners do on CD, at least possibly even digital or vinyl. I don't know if you own a copy or not. I did, and I don't know where my copy is. So the next few albums were all number ones in multiple countries. 1987's Momentary Lapse of Reason ironically bucked that trend and only hit number one in New Zealand. But then the next two albums, 94's Division Bell and 2014's The Endless River, were back on the prior trend of number one in multiple countries. They did their finger quotes final tour, the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour, that concluded in October 94. In July 2005, Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright reunited for Live 8, but turned down a touring contract. Shortly after that, Barrett and Wright passed away, and there was another break until 2012 when Gilmore and Mason needed more money, I mean, started to record again. <laughs> 2014's Endless River was it, though. Gilmore stated, I think we've had a su- we've successfully commandeered the best of what there is. It's a shame, but this is the end. They didn't tour for it, as Gilmore felt it was kind of impossible without Wright. He reiterated in August of 2015 that Pink Floyd were done, and that to reunite without Wright would be just wrong. Pink Floyd released 15 albums that spawned 27 singles, including Money. And let's go ahead and take a listen. Money! It's a gal. Now, Money is a single, again, off of 1973's Dark Side of the Moon. The song has mixed meanings depending on whom you speak with. Some say it's a tribute to money, some say it's a satire of money and its misgivings, and others say it's about greed and the goal of life. Again, whatever. Who fucking cares? It's a good song. Um, It's got the cash register, it's got the coins, the funky twangy guitar, it's got some dirty sax, and then they said bullshit in a song, which some, some radio stations caught, some didn't, so it's like, oh my god, they swore... So as a kid, you were just like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. This is always one of my favorite songs off of Dark Side. However, I prefer Time better, but that's like just my opinion, man. Yeah. Um, I give it a six. I don't know, man. Time is fleeting. There you go. So what do you say? <laughs> what do you think about this one? Well, you know, this is one of those songs. It's it's Pink Floyd. It's And that's what catches you is that opening riff with the guitar, the... The cash register, the money. The tearing tape and such. The tearing tape, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's got a soul to it that a lot of other songs don't have, or that they almost have. But this has it. This song has something to it. It's, you know, it's, sure, it's about corporate greed and that kind of stuff. I mean, it really is, if you listen to some of the lyrics, and great. But it's just one of those songs, it's it's a good song, it's a fun song, and 
And dude, it's about money. Who can who can live without money? Unfortunately, nobody can. Exactly. So. All right. So you gave this a six. Yeah. I think I'd go a little higher than that. I'd go with a seven on this one. Okay. I'm almost tempted to have you rate it before I do, so you can't judge it, so I can start getting more right. <laughs> no. All right. So next we've got we're jumping to the '80s. We're going with "Lux That Kill" by Motley Crue. Yes, sir. All right, so Motley Crue is an American heavy metal band that formed in 1981 of Nikki Six, Tommy Lee, Vince Nail, and Mick Mars, one of the ugliest motherfuckers out there. That's why that's why they hide him. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Vince Neil unfortunately got kind of fat, so he's not really the figure face anymore. What is he, like 60? I know that, but it's just like Axel. I mean, they got Axel fat. <laughs> so Shit happens, man. So the band formed out of an ad placed on the recycler, which apparently is big, was big back in the 70s yeah. and 80s. Mick came from there, and they needed a vocalist, so they, they wanted Vince Neil, but he declined initially wanting to stay with his former band, Rock Candy. Rock Candy wanted to do outside projects, and Nick and Neil got anxious, so he accepted the invite was hired in April of 81. They went through multiple possible name changes, including Christmas. Can you imagine if they'd the have been called Christmas, Christmas? They would not have made it. No. So Mars remembers that someone saying the group looked like a motley crew and wrote down motley, M-O-T-T-L-E-Y-C-R-U, which evolved with metal umlauts to Motley Crue. They toured and released their debut album, 1981's Too Fast for Love, where it went to number 77 on the U.S. charts. Between MTV and opening for Ozzy in 84, the band got huge. All members had legal and life issues. Neil crashed and killed his passenger, got 30 days in jail, but served 18 and a $2 million fine. For killing somebody. Must be nice to be famous. I guess. Nikki Six OD'd on heroin, but was brought back to life with adrenaline later, which inspired Kickstart My Heart. The final straw was when the band managers intervened and refused the band a tour in Europe. They all cleaned up their acts, and sobriety led to 1989's Dr. Feelgood, which sold better than any of their albums yet. With success comes issues, and Vince Neil left or was fired, depending on who you talk to. Six said that Neil quit, Neil insisted he was fired. Neil stated in 2000, any band has its little spats, and this one was basically stemmed from a bunch of fuck yous in rehearsal studio. And went to from I quit to you're fired. It was handled idiotically. <laughs> so John Karabi was brought on, and while making the Billboard Top 10, fans hated it because it was not Vince Neil. Karabi suggested fans make up with Vince Neil, which they did, which means Karabi got fired. Tommy Lee quit in 99 to go solo, and due to increased tension with Vince Neil, and was replaced with Randy Castillo, who stayed a little while before becoming ill with what turned out to be cancer, and was replaced with Samantha Maloney, which Castillo, while Castillo tried to recover. He passed in 2002 and the band went on hiatus. The original four returned to continue recording and touring. They began their final tour in 2011 and played their last North American tour date in Spokane on November 22nd of 2014 before going international. After those concerts, they came back to North America and finished out the last time in Los Angeles on December 31st of 2015. Fin end, end the year and end your career. Yeah, yeah. So Motley Crue released nine studio albums that have spawned 30 singles in their career. Looks That Kill is one of them, and let's take a listen to Looks That Kill. Now, this is a Nikki Six Pen single off of their sophomore effort, 1983 Shout Out the Devil. The song is just about a hardcore woman. It's an early crew song. Again, it's off their second album that sounds dirty and gritty and hard, kind of like the rest of their album. It seemed a bit underproduced compared to their more modern stuff, but then again, their older stuff was more about rock than radio-friendly glam. It's not a bad song. I gave this one a six also. Okay. Now, this is a song that it's not so much the song. I have to admit here. It's not so much the song. It's the video. 
Okay. <laughs> they got women in pens, and it's just, you know, it's just, it's horrible. And, and my Sounds dog, a little misogynistic, but oh, I mean... Oh, very much so. But then again, so a lot of the 80s videos. Exactly. But it was it was Hot Women, it was a rock song, it was just... All these things went together. And man, that was the infancy of, you know, MTV. Oh yeah, the early and 80s. I remember yeah. seeing those videos, and they would actually blur out parts of the screen. And I laugh now, because I look at it, and I'm like, why? I mean, there were there were no boobs hanging out, it was just cleavage. Bikinis, right. Yeah, you know, kind of stuff. And I was just like, I don't get it, but it was... It was always that cutting edge stuff, you know. It was the stuff that my mother went, why are you listening to this? You know, what 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 is it possibly about this music that... It was still somewhat rebellion. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always thought of Crew as a glam metal band, but I get heavy metal out of it as well, but... Some of it. It depends on what you listen to. Yeah. You know? I mean, because they can go softer. I mean, they had, like, Without You off of the Dr. Feelgood album. They got the most, one of my hated songs ever, and that's Home Sweet Home. Stand that they played the death out of that song. They did play the death out of it, but I still think it's a good song. Oh, anyway, I, I turn it off every time. I'm sick of it. I just, I just, it was just one of those things. It was the perfect storm of everything. It was the video. It was the music. It was mom not liking it. It was that whole, you know, thing. I definitely give this. This song is like a seven to me. All right, which is one higher than I expected. All right, next we've got Brothers in Arms with by the Dire Straits. Dire Straits were an English rock band that formed in 1977, a really good year. Originally, For you. Well, yeah. You're already around. <laughs> screw you. <laughs> Originally included, including the brothers Knopfler, Mark on lead guitar, and David on rhythm guitar and backing vocals, John Isley, or Ilsley, however you pronounce that, on bass, and Pick Withers on drums and percussion. They did bluesy jazz rock fusion. They played together and went through a few personnel changes before splitting up in 1988 for Mark Knopfler to work on some solo stuff and movie soundtracks. He announced the dissolution of the band in 1990, but then in 91 resurrected the band with uh, by Isley and Mark Knopfler. After a couple more album releases to tepid... How's that word? Tepid? Yeah, that's a good one. Commercial success, the Dire Straits split up for good in 1995 when Mark decided to focus on his solo career again. In the end, the two only members of the original band were Mark and John. John stated that he has no ambition to revive the band. The band will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018, and per John Ilsley, even though they'd be there for it, whether they'll play or not will be solely up to Mark Knopfler. That level of respect is pretty commendable. Mm -hmm. Dire Straits released six albums in their time together that spawned 23 singles, one of which is Brothers in Arm, which actually is its own album as well. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and take a listen to this one. Every man has to die. And again, Brothers in Arms is a song coming off of the 85 album of the same name. It's a slower, softer piece that Knopfler wrote with the Falklands War between the Argentina and England in mind. I know the album is sort of a greatest hits for the band, but for me, this is kind of a miss. I never really cared for the song. I like Dire Straits, just the song is a bit of a snooze fest for me. I understand that he wanted to show range, but this just isn't what I listen to the Dire Straits for. You don't listen to Metallica for a ballad. True. Generally speaking. Now, if you remember the trivia, because we talked about this one for families, and that was that per Guinness Book of World Records, Brothers in Arms was the first CD to sell a million copies and was credited for helping popularize the digital format. So we have Brothers in Arms to thank for actually making CDs popular. This one I gave a five. Okay. 
So, funny story about this one and how I came to listen to Dire Straits. Uh, Brothers in Arms was the first CD I ever stole. Delightful. Not from a store, though. From my brother. Oh, well, that's okay, then. It's your family. (laughs) No, I mean, I literally took it, listened to it, and then I hid it so he could never find it again. (laughs) You dick. (laughs) That's funny, though. I just totally fell in love with that album. The entire album. But this song, there's just a... It's a song about camaraderie. Mm -hmm. You know, and when I was younger... I wasn't the uh, outgoing kind of person I am now, you know, and it was a song that made me think that uh, life and relationships outside of your family are possible. Mm-hmm. And and that's really how it, it got to me. I actually would give this one an eight. Okay. I remember first hearing this one. I mean, I've heard Money for Nothing because that's another one. Oh, God, that's and played walk, to death. And Walk of Life. I really, really like Walk of Life, mm-hmm. actually. I borrowed this or lent this out from the Marathon County Library. And you on, still own it? On cassette tape. <laughs> On cassette tape. Yes, because I had actually an, a record player, but yeah, that one I checked out on, on tape because tapes were the new thing. Yeah. And I do have the CD for this one, actually. I you know, think. it's actually kind of funny if we if we sit and think about it. The the way that music has evolved just in our lifetimes. I mean, I remember growing up, my uncle had 8-tracks. Everything yeah. was on 8-tracks. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was vinyl, the 45s in the house. And 78s. And we had a few 78s, but it was mostly... Or the 33s. 33s. That's it. That's what I was uh, thinking. The 33s, but mostly we had 45s. Because you put it on 78 if you wanted to listen to like Alvin and Chipmunks. Yeah. And then, and then you know, it went into cassette tapes, mm-hmm. and then into CDs, and now everything's digital. You know, and Best Buy said that they're going to stop selling CDs. However, CDs are actually... They just put out some poll that said that CDs are actually still selling really well. Yeah, I, I heard it's that. Selling, it's, CDs are selling better than digital sales. But streaming is still more popular than both of them, which maybe that'll make Best Buy reconsider. Because I know there's still a lot of people, myself included, that it's kind of nice to actually have an yeah. actual disc yeah. without having to burn my own. Because, right. I mean, hell, I can download from iTunes or, or whatever service you use. I can get the whole album and then make my own CD. But, you know, having their own art on it and the right. whatever, it's kind of nice. That was right. the best part about getting those some of the booklets with the lyrics and the artwork and everything else. Albums yeah. were cooler because, like, the vinyl albums had the huge-ass artwork on it. Yeah. So, moving on. Now we're getting to the later part of the 80s. We got a little Bon Jovi here, and that's Wanted Dead or Alive. Now, Bon Jovi is an American rock band formed in 1983 by John Francis Bon Jovi Jr., who decided to shorten it to John, or Americanize it, I should yep. say, to John Bon Jovi. Yeah, it, it's pronounced the same way, but goddamn, is that Italian. Yeah, no shit, right? He started playing piano and guitar around age 13 with his first band, Rays. He met bandmate David Bryan and went through multiple band names and submitting many demos, one of which being the 1981 song Runaway. He started writing and singing jingles for the local radio station, and in early 83, the station suggested releasing homegrown local talent, and it got a following. Later, in March, Bon Jovi called Bryan, who called Alex John Such and Tico Torres. Dave Sabo was tapped to play lead guitar but never officially joined the band, but rather went on to form Skid Row. More on that, I promise. Instead, Richie Sambora was brought in, and the official band was formed. They signed a contract and released their first album in 1984, self-titled Bon Jovi, where it peaked in the top 50 in the U.S., but interestingly went to 18 in Finland. Yeah, they've always had a huge over... And, and their Asian following is gigantic. This, there's other bands that, when I was doing research for them, like, ah, it's one, it's like 5, 15, 25, number one in, like, Sweden, or, like, Swaziland, or something. Like, what Singapore. The, yeah, what? Like, what the hell? So they played Farm Aid in, I believe that was 85, and continued touring and recording, getting bigger and bigger all the time, but it wasn't until 1986's Slippery When Wet that they were truly an arena hair metal force to be reckoned with. 
They toured until mentally, physically, and creatively exhausted, so the band took a break in the early 90s, coming back with 1992's Keep the Faith. The renewed interest kept them going until their second hiatus to finish out the 90s. They were grouped in 1999 and continued on touring and recording. Richie Sambora was out of the band for personal reasons in April 2013, and based on what him and John Bon Jovi had said, there's no bad blood between them anymore, and he may come back in the future. That would be cool. The band together and as solo artists have worked on many different projects that have kept them busy and are still active today. Bon Jovi has released 13 studio albums that have spawned 66 singles. 66 singles. Imagine saying that if you were loaded. It was like, like a great outdoors when he's like, how many times have you been struck by lightning? 66. Let's go ahead and listen to some Wanted Dead or Alive. Now, this is a single off the seminal 1986 album, Slippery When Wet, the same album that gave us You Give Love a Bad Name, Living Under Prayer, and one of my favorite songs, Raise Your Hands. The song, Per John, is mainly about life on the road while touring and was inspired by Bob Seger's Turn the Page. Since he's a big Old West fan, it had to be a gunslinger vibe, talking about his loaded six-string on his back and on a steel horse I ride, which was the tour bus, by the way. It's a pretty damn good song, um, which may surprise you to hear me say this. Uh, no. The unfortunate part is, however, it got played to death. On the radio, which, like anything popular, is what happens. I'm not a, as huge a Bon Jovi fan as you are, but I appreciate music and his artistry. Supposedly, this was the song that gave MTV the idea to do the unplug craze after John and Richie played it acoustically at the 1989 Video Music Awards. I gave this a 7. Okay. I think it should be higher, but we'll get to that. I can tell you exactly when I found Bon Jovi. Exactly. You thought he was a woman because of the long hair, and then you're like, oh my god, that's a man. No. Oh, okay. So, this would have been about 87, I think. So, um, for Christmas that year, my, I told my mother I wanted a rock and roll tape. Oh, no. So, my but mother... But you, you didn't say what band or what... Correct. Oh, God. So, she goes off, and uh, my aunt was an Avon lady. My mom did that, too. So, she bought... It was, an, it was an album called Avon Rock and Reel. Oh, no. And it actually had some really good music on there. But it had, it had like, Tina Turner. Um, Not bad. It had, you know, it had a bunch of really good stuff on it. But what it had on there was Bon Jovi, Wanted Dead or Alive. Really? Dude. Sold. Instantly. I was... Did you, was your mind blown? It was. And that doesn't happen a lot. At least not anymore. Maybe it did more when I was young, but... That song, this song, blew my mind. This song made me go, what else do they have? This song made me go, when I finally, finally got a chance in 2012, I want to say, to see Bon Jovi live, to lay out the money to see Bon Jovi live. And I am. I am am a mark for Bon Jovi more than any other band, more than the Beatles, more than... Even his country stuff? Fuck you! (laughs) He didn't do well. He did do a country song or two. Crossroads, I do. I enjoy Crossroads. Um, is it normal stuff? No. As the band has gotten older, I'm they, not as much into the music either. They softened a bit. They did, but like Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi, 7800 degrees Fahrenheit, Slippery When Wet, 
um, New, New Jersey. Jersey, even up into you know beyond that. But those four albums right there, to me, that's that's Bon Jovi. That there's there's probably a dog on each of those albums, but off the top of my head, I can't tell you what they are. It's one of those that you'll listen to a whole thing without skipping. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I. I mean, this is as close as we're going to get to the unicorn. This is a nine. Okay. I would have given it an eight for you. Now, I have to ask, now with that Avon thing, was that a cassette tape or was it an actual? It was a cassette tape. Do you still have it? I do not. I'm intrigued to maybe do some searching online because I would love to see the actual playlist for that. It was Avon Rock and Reel. We'll check it out after the episode. All right. I'm going to actually write that down so we remember. All right. So, yes, this is going to be a longer one. So, But that's okay. People like to listen to us talk. Yeah. Hold on to your butts. We're still going. <laughs> All right, so now we're up to 89. We're almost cracking the 90s. Not quite there yet, though. We do get into the 90s, but I will warn you. Well, maybe not warn you, but I'll let you know. So Just it, barely. We, we make it into the 90s, and that's... And I've said that how many times on this on this show? Yep, absolutely. The 90s, the mid-90s, I'm done. All right. So now, as I mentioned before, we're going to get to more of that later. Well, here we're getting more to it, and that's Skid Row, and that was 18 in Life. Now, Skid Row is an American hair metal band, or I guess just a metal band, but they kind of did hair a little bit. A little bit? No, a little well, anyways, they formed in 1986 of Rachel Bolin and Dave Sabo. They brought on Scotty Hill and Rob Afuso and recruited Sebastian Bach in 1987. Since Sabo and Bon Jovi were friends and had a pact that if one made it, the other one helped the other one out, Bon Jovi made good on his promise and his manager, Doc McGee, suck, seeked out or sought out. Ah, there he is, sought yeah. out. Skid Row and got them a record deal in 1988. Nice to have friends. Yeah. They released... Actually, that's one of the things I remember. when, And this is kind of a crossover between Bon Jovi and Skid Row. Mm-hmm. I had like a, a cassette tape, a VHS tape of Bon Jovi, a, a like concert footage. It was like, but John would introduce each song and then they'd show you the video. And so it was kind of a standard thing. But in one of the things, uh, in the in the entire thing, uh, Sable, Chris Sable is sitting there. You know, and he's got this big snake on his arm because he's Chris the Sable snake or Sa- Chris the snake Sable or whatever. But it was just like, and he talks about Skid Row. And how it's this upcoming band and stuff. So, I mean, even on that, he's kind of pushing these guys. And I just think that's funny. Oh, absolutely. Now, they released their first album in 1989, their self-titled Skid Row, where it peaked at number six on the U.S. charts. They supported the album by touring with Bon Jovi on their New Jersey tour. And in the next few years, they toured and worked with other huge bands, such as Motley Crue on their Dr. Feelgood European tour with White Lion. Wait, what? Yeah, exactly. And Aerosmith. It's like a shit sandwich right there. It's like Aerosmith and... And Motley Crue with White Line in the middle. Like, it's like the Will Smith thing. 100 million, 100 million, 100 million. What the fuck is this? Yeah, pretty much. So after touring, they went back to the studio for their second album, which turned out to be much heavier than their debut, after which they supported Guns N' Roses. Then in 1990, a little thing called grunge happened. Or started to happen, I should say. That movement lessened their exposure on MTV, so they started playing smaller gigs. Sebastian Bach left the band in 1996 over an argument regarding opening acts. Apparently, he and Bolin got into a spat because Bach booked with a Kiss reunion tour, and Bolin turned it down. Other band members told Bach that Skid Row was too big for an opening act, and they wouldn't do the show. Yeah. That's 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 egos getting out of check. Yeah. Bach left a voicemail that said the band was never too big to open for Kiss. And he's right. I agree with him. There's nobody... At, at Kiss's heyday, there was nobody too big to open for Kiss. Well, and here's the kicker of it. There was a bit of a hiatus, and then they reformed with a new lineup in 1999, opening for Kiss on its farewell tour. Which one? The first farewell tour? Well, yeah. <laughs> and other, and they toured with other 80s metal bands like Poison and Vince Neil. They've continued to tour and record, focusing more on EPs than since 2000 than rather full studio albums, putting out the United World Rebellion Chapter 1 and 2 and 13 and 14, respectively. They did, however, state in March of 2018 
that the next release for United World Rebellion Trilogy would be a full-length album coming out sometime in 2019. Skid- As of now, unnamed, I believe. I believe so, yes. Now, Skid Row has released five studio albums that have spawned 21 singles, one of which being 18 in life. Let's take a listen. Now, 18 to Life is a single off the self-titled debut, 1989 Skid Row. The song's a story about a kid that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and was a bit of a ruffian. A rapscallion, per se. Ooh. I know, right? Here and there, they're rapscallions. Fancy words over there. <laughs> yeah. He played with liquor, drugs, and guns, and one day fucked up by shooting a kid, either on purpose or on accident. Sounds like by accident. And the line says that the child blew a child away and got him life in prison, 18 in life. So 18 years to life. I like this song. It's a cautionary tale. It's a good heavy metal-ish song because it's not super heavy, but it's not light rock either. Right. This is an easy seven for me. This one, I think, might shock you as to how I came across this song. Now, it got a little bit of airplay on MTV, so I had heard it in the past, but mm-hmm. never really associated with it until Emma brought it to me. Really? Yeah. She said, Dad, have you ever heard of this band Skid Row? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't you love that, though? It's like doing the... I got they think they, they, they think they found it. Like, yeah, we found this like 30 years ago. Right. And she's like, well, I've been listening to this one song, and I really, really like it. And I said, which song is it? You know, I'm hoping for, you know, something else. Something, Youth Gone Wild. Youth Gone Wild. Um, fuck Off. Um, you know, something that was really hard and growling. She's like... Or I'll Remember You. That's, that's a good oh, that's ballad. A good one, too, yeah. But, you know, and she goes, 18 in life. And I'm like, you know, I kind of go through the, the data bank that is my bungled mind. And I'm like, yeah, I know that song. And she's like, I just have really been listening to it. And we sat down, and we were listening to it. And I'm like, you know, I never really gave it the time. But it's a good song. But it's a really good song. And she didn't put that on her playlist? No. God damn it. <laughs> you know, kids. What? Yeah. But anyway, so that's why that one's on there. This one's just a little tip of my hat to the kid, you know? Cool. But and she's uh, got good taste sometimes. She, sometimes. So I would give this one a seven. All right. Hey, we're back on track. No, you're back on track. <laughs> All right. So now we just cracked the 90s. In fact, our last one, two, three are 90s. Yep. So we've got Something to Believe in by Poison, and in fact, actually exactly 1990. So Poison's American rock band that formed in 1983 of Brett Michaels, Matt Smith, Bobby Dahl, and Ricky Rocket. So here's here's a sadness. Well, sad for me, happy for Emma. Emma got to meet Brett Michaels. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, so I was like a so little jealous. Was he a dick? Was he decent? He's a nice guy. Um, actually... Did, he get, did she get pictures? Yeah, we do have pictures. Awesome. So she met him. She was with Grandma and Grandpa. Okay. So Grandma and Grandpa got to meet him. And actually, my my father-in-law was kind of like the head of security for this thing that they were doing. Mm-hmm. So he got to, like, let people in and out with Brett Michaels and all that kind of fun stuff. But Emma got to meet him, had a picture taken. And Nikki's mom was like, he's a really nice guy. He's really smart and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and then she goes, did you know he's diabetic? I'm like, yeah. Everybody knows he's diabetic. I think, I think honestly, when you find out, if you have a specific disease, especially mm-hmm. a controllable one, you find who else is out there. Just like if you're Jewish, you find out who other Jews are. If you have diabetes, you figure out what other people have diabetes. Okay. It's just how it works. Yeah. Anyway, go on. All right. So uh, they started off as Paris and had a local following in Pennsylvania, but wanted to make it big. So they changed their name to Poison and moved out to L.A. in 83. They scraped by doing self-promotion and playing clubs to make ends meet. Smith left the band to be a family guy, and there were three options to replace him. Slash... Steve Silva from the Joe Perry Project and C.C. DeVille. Sean Mike, I almost said Sean Michaels. Brett Michaels. 
That would have been an intriguing band, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, didn't And DeVille didn't get along initially, but was picked because of the fire that he had. They signed a contract and shortly afterwards released 1986's Look What the Cat Dragged In, where it peaked at number three in the U.S. They continued partying, rocking, partying, drinking, rocking, and rolling as they toured and released music. 1990's Flesh and Bud was the turn for them. They matured and tried to shed their hair metal image. It wasn't all, it wasn't all peachy, though, as through constant touring coupled with personal differences and addictions, the band members were ready to throw down. CeCe's coke habit caused a major rift that caused a brawl between him and Michaels at the 1991 VMAs. CeCe was fired and Richie Kotzen was brought in. He wasn't well-liked and came to a head when it was found that he was fooling around with Ricky Rocket's then-fiancé. Oops. Not the way to stay in a band. No, not usually. He got the boot and was replaced by Blues Sarcino and was booted in 1996 when CeCe and Michaels made up. They did a greatest hits reunion tour in 1999 with the original lineup and sold out shows all over the place taking time to record and release. They took a year off for members to recharge, get sober, whatever, until 2006 when they toured again in the 20 Years of Rock World Tour for their anniversary. Predictably, more fighting ensued, this time between Michaels and Dahl, as well as some reality TV with Michaels and DeVille, and Celebrity Apprentice. Which actually Michaels won, I believe. Yeah, I think he did. 2010 was horrible for Michaels, however, having been hospitalized for a burst appendix and then later for a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The death rate is between 40 and 50 percent. Wow. That being said, the band's making the most of it, still touring and doing side projects, and word is there's a tour coming up, the Nothing But A Good Time Tour, with Cheap Trick and whoever Pop Evil is, that starts in May and ends in June of this year. You've never heard of Pop Evil? No. You're not missing much. Okay. Since her debut, Poison released seven studio albums that have spawned 28 singles. One of those albums actually was an album of covers, which I have and is actually pretty damn awesome. Now, Something to Believe In is a power ballad, if you couldn't tell by the title of it, that was released off of 1990's Flesh and Blood. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Now, the song talks about different issues, people getting scammed, veterans' struggles, as well as his own struggles and loss of a close personal friend from Michaels. It is by no means a shiny, happy song, but definitely a very heartfelt ballad by Michaels and the crew. It's inspired by real-life heartbreak that actually, if you listen, you can really actually hear it in his voice. I mean, he's not bullshitting. You can tell it's what's going on. I guess it was one of his bodyguards, a big Samoan guy that passed away, mm -hmm. and... Rumor has it in the video they showed picture they showed a video of his bodyguard and he actually broke down and could barely keep it together. I believe it. But they didn't tell him they were going to show him this video. So it's a good song. It's not one of my favorite of theirs because I like more of the rockin' stuff. It's still a solid six though. Okay. Now, this song, as you can tell, is is very personal for me. And I don't know why, because none of this stuff has happened to me. You're not a vet? No, I'm not a vet. Um, I'm not homeless yet. And you're not anybody's bodyguard. I'm not anybody's bodyguard. Or but... Polynesian, for that matter. <laughs> what? I'm white! <laughs> you need to go back and watch that movie. Um, but it just, it, it grabs the heartstrings, you know? And Gives you the feels? <sighs> Fine, yes. I was hoping we could get through this entire episode without... Dude, you're almost ch choking up over there. Of course <laughs> it's giving you the feels. <laughs> but it's just one of those songs that every time I hear it, it's just... You know, and I and I don't like to listen to the song when other people are around because of the emotion that it might evoke. Yeah, there might be waterworks involved, and I don't know why. 
you know, it, it hit me hard. I've lost a couple friends that were way too young to go through, you know, in one case a car accident, another one through, you know, self-inflicted kind of, it wasn't suicide per se, but basically. Mm. Uh, and so when I hear that, especially that verse really gets to me because it's like, you know, these people had such... Um, they had a lot more to give. Yeah, they had so much more. You know, they were so young and, and it was just like... And, and it and it's hard. So that's where that's where this song is personal to me. Um, Keep talking. You know, I, I just I don't know. I don't even know how to rate this one. I don't think I want to rate this one. I I I just don't think I want to rate this one. Fair enough. So let's move on. Let's go to something a little happy. Well, not even happier actually. So <laughs> yeah, I really kind of fucked that one up, didn't we? All right. So next, second to last, we have Civil War by Guns N' Roses. Shiny happy war. Yay. <laughs> So, Guns N' Roses is an American hard rock band that formed in 85. Izzy Stradlin of Hollywood Rose was living with L.A. Guns member Tracy Guns, and L.A. Guns needed a new singer. Stradlin suggested Hollywood Rose singer Axl Rose. The initial lineup was Rose, Stradlin, Guns, Old Bike on bass, and Rob Gardner of L.A. Guns. The name, if you couldn't figure it out, was a combination of L.A. Guns and Hollywood Rose. Bike was fired... What? Yeah. Bike was fired for Duff McKagan... Guns N' Roses got in a pissing match, and Guns left with opening, which opened the door for Slash. Gardner quit shortly afterwards and was replaced by Steven Adler. This is considered the classic lineup and was finalized on June 4th of 1985. They played a few gigs and had a messed up tour that they kind of self-did themselves, which is, it was like, it was like a cripple fight. I mean, I'm sorry, this tour is ridiculous. Yeah, have you read the Slash autobiography? I know, but I read... He talks about it, it all was... the way up the coast and just how horrible it was. So they finally signed with Geffen Records in 1986, and their debut album was 1987's Appetite for Destruction that smashed the charts and hit in the U.S. hit number one, having worldwide sales of nearly 31 million albums. Way to st- you know hit the ground running, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They continue recording tour, oftentimes their concerts being more eventful than the actual band performances because of Axel's antics. Even though they were drugged and coked out of their minds and the rotation kept changing, they still booked gigs because they were one of the most popular bands of the late 80s. There was tension in the band, but that's like any act. Still touring and recording, they put up part one and part two called User Illusion in 1991. The next release was 93's The Spaghetti Incident, question mark, that didn't quite live up to expectations. No, it, it was a, see, that was a, uh, it was a cover, a cover album. album. And, I really enjoyed it. And that actually was kind of the spark that led to the, the break. Now, between 94 and 99, the band didn't do much other than write a song or two. It was around that time that the new album was announced, Chinese Democracy, but never released amid more band turbulence. Finally, in 2008, it did come out and peaked at number three in the U.S. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012, and all but Axel showed up due to Axel's animosity with Slash. The reigning members of the band performed with Miles Kennedy of Ultra Bridge. Sounds kind of cool, actually, now, yeah. now that I follow Ultra Bridge more. <laughs> right. Fast forward to 2015, and the band regrouped for the Not In This Lifetime tour, having Axel and Slash playing nice, at least for the music. The North American leg of the tour ended in November of 17, with a European tour set to go from June 3rd to July 21st of 2018. They've all been contributing, but thus far, per guitarist Richard Fotis, have not been back to the studio yet. Guns N' Roses have released six studio albums that have spawned 18 singles, Civil War being one of those that originally appeared on the compilation album Nobody's Child of 1990. Nobody's Child, I'm sorry, Nobody's Child Romanian Angel, appeal and then for guns and roses was officially on 1991's user illusion 2 let's go ahead and take a listen to civil war no, 
this is an anti-war song where all war is considered civil and features a soundbite from the Paul Newman flick Cool Hand Luke to open it up, though what we've got here is failure to communicate. As I've mentioned before, my opinion is that Illusion 2 was the superior of the, of the user Illusion albums. That being said, I have to say this wasn't one of the high points for me. It's got a good message, a message, a message overall. <laughs> exactly. It isn't awful. It just didn't do it for me. There, I would skip this track to get some of the other songs on the album. Um, this is a five for me. Well, now you you say that "Use Your Illusion" two is the better of the two, but I know of that now two songs that you're not overly fond of, and that would be "Civil War" and "Get in the Ring." It's not the worst song in the world, and honestly, I mean, I like if I don't like two songs of "Illusion" two, I like. I dislike even more. I think the only good song off of Illusion 1 is the cover, The Live and Let Die. The rest of it's a skippable album. Wow. Anyway, this song, I just, I love it. It's it, From the very beginning with the, what we've got here is a failure to communicate. Have you ever seen the movie? No. I have not either. It's on my list. All right, so it's on the list. But You just made the list. <laughs> but this is just one of those songs. It's, it's an anti-war song. I'm not a big fan of war i mean i understand why war has i appreciate to... you saying that <laughs> well you know some people are like you know war is a good thing you know it helps the economy and all this stuff and though that's true it if it's done for the right reasons but what right. are the right reasons right and we haven't been in a in a legitimate war for the right reason anybody as far as i can tell since about world war ii to take out the nazis that sounds like a pretty good reason for me i would have to i i'm not going to actually comment on that one because i i need to research more about i mean i know vietnam war was a clusterfuck but korea was a clusterfuck uh, that one i wasn't sure about you know the first f the first the gulf war in 1991 that's hit or miss because saddam really needed to be taken care of yeah but they didn't take care of him then they just pushed him back into his castle and like no his, his spider hole you know and my but, brother was in desert storm and even he's at the point where he's like i we didn't do what we should have done. Now, if they had went in there and, and dealt with the problem instead of just kicking some dirt on it so it had to dig out for a few years. The biggest problem is is there's too much politics involved. Whereas back in like the 40s and 50s or 30s and 40s, people were more willing to get stuff done with whatever means it took. Whereas True. now there's so much political bullshit that goes on that they can't. But this is not about war. This is about yeah. civil war. Yes. So, you know, and, and it's one of those things. It's an anti-war song, and, and that calls to me... I think Axel's vocals on this are spot on. Um, the music itself, I really enjoy. So, you know, this is, for me, this is an eight. Easy. Okay. All right. So we're going to go ahead and finish this one off. We're going to finish with a 1991 song, and that is for Queen. So barely scratch in the 90s. Yep. Queen, and they are, and I almost liked were, actually, a Brit rock band formed in 1970 of Brian May, Roger Taylor, and Tim Stoffel. They called themselves Smile. Freddie Mercury joined after Stoffel left for another band, and it was he who suggested the change to Queen, which the irony is not lost. But they were British, so maybe, I don't know. I, I get it what you're be, saying. It could be taken anyways. Yeah. So John Deacon joined the band in February of 71, and the classic lineup was born. They had the first performance with this lineup on July 2nd of the same year and started touring immensely. Queen were signed to EMI in 73 and later released the album, their debut album, Queen, that peaked at number 24 in the UK charts. They continued to tour and broke into the U.S. scene after releasing two more albums that were in the top 50 of the U.S. as well as top 10 in the U.K. It was, however, their fourth effort, 1975's Night at the Opera, where Queen truly broke out, helped out with the singles You're My Best Friend and Bohemian Rhapsody. Riding that high, they continued touring mostly in the U.S., U.K., and Canada, but spending a fair amount of time in Europe and Japan in 1979. The story is kind of the same for the 80s, you know, touring and recording. They did, however, realize in 1983 that they were working for 10 straight years and needed a breather, so in... 
1983, they didn't do any live shows. 84 came along, so they did a new tour and notable live performances, including 1985's Live Aid. In summer of 86, they started to tour to support A Kind of Magic. Little did they know that this was going to be a huge turning point for the band. Fans were starting to notice that Freddie Mercury's gaunt appearance and media port- the media reported that he was seriously ill with AIDS. Mercury flatly denied it, insisting he was just exhausted for being 42 year old, 42 years old and heavily involved in music for two decades, which is true. Mm-hmm. This was also the reason that he didn't give interviews. What the media didn't know is that he had been diagnosed with HIV. Due to his situation, the tour didn't, they didn't tour, but they kept releasing material. On November 23, 1991, Freddie Mercury, on his deathbed, confirmed that he had AIDS, and within 24 hours of that, died from bronchial pneumonia as a complication of the disease. Bohemian Rhapsody was released shortly after he passed, and between that and Wayne's World invigorated Queen again. A tribute concert was performed for Mercury in April of 92, including Elton John, Def Leppard, George Michael, Guns N' Roses, and Metallica, to name a few. And that made the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest rock star benefit concert due to raising over 20 million pounds, which would be $28.2 million for charity. And it was seen by over 1.2 billion people worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. There was turmoil in the band while recording and creating compilations. Weren't sure if they'd carry on, but of course they're queen and they did. May and Taylor reunited with Paul Rogers of Bad Company and toured starting in 2005. Rogers went his own way, citing in 2009, citing it would only be temporary, however Queen wasn't done. They've continued to tour with guest leads, most recently Queen plus Adam Lambert of American Idol fame, <sighs> and are considered active today. Queen's released 15 studio albums that have spawned 72 singles. Let's take a quick listen to The Show Must Go On. Now, the show must... That was the first time you said the name of the song. No, I think it's... Uh, my, uh, whatever. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. So, the show must go on as a single off of 1991's Innuendo. Freddie Mercury was at the end of his life, and Brian May wasn't sure if he could perform the song, but Freddie just nailed it. May said, I said, Fred, I don't know if this is going to be possible to sing. And he went, I'll fucking do it, darling. Vodka down, he went in and killed it. Completely lacerated the vocal. The song gives me the impression of a funeral. It's definitely a departure from Classic Queen. It's not a bad song, but it's not something I'd want to listen to over and over again. Now that I hear that it was pretty much right before he died, it seems pretty appropriate. I don't love this song. I like Queen. It's a five for me, but not because it's a bad song. It's just not one that I really care for. That's fair enough. It's a it's a rough song. It really is. Um, you know, it yeah, it's at the end of his life. He's doing this song about how the show must go on. And then there's all this turmoil after he dies, whether they're going to go on or not. And I've seen an interview where... Brian May said, you know, that's eventually what they came back to was that song. And that was Freddie's permission for them to continue on as Queen. It's like, don't you dare quit. Right. Just because I'm gone, this is this is something greater. Yeah, Queen is not just me. Right. And it's, it's one of those songs that I got into really heavily when I was in high school. Because I was in theater and I did all that kind of stuff. Theater. Theater! Uh, but, yeah, it, it was one of those things where I did a lot of theater. You know, the show must go on. You hear that all the time backstage. You know, people are sick. People are puking their guts out. Mm-hmm. I actually went on stage one night with a 104-degree fever. Dude, <laughs> I don't remember one of those performances, but I've been told they were spot on. Nice. But, you know, it's just like, you know, you do whatever it takes to make the show go on. Right. And 
so that's where I fell in love with it. But yeah, you 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 bundle in the fact that you know this was right before Freddy died. I mean, if you've seen the the video for this, he is so skinny. He is so you can tell he is so sick. Oh yeah. You know, and um, you know, and he he waited to confirm or deny the the rumors on his own terms. On his own terms, and you know nowadays it's like people come out all the time that they've got. HIV or they've got AIDS or whatever. Because well, it's not a big deal now. Right. I mean, it is, a, but it's not. It is, but in the most cases now, it's a survivable... For a while, yeah. I mean, then again, it all depends on your... Magic Johnson. Right. And it all depends on your situation, too. I mean, right. if you can't afford it... True. But there's a lot of drugs that are being developed now for it, and that's all a good thing, and it all started with him actually making that statement. Because mm-hmm. if he would have just died... This is my opinion. If he had just died and nobody really knew, I mean, there would be speculation. But the guys in Queen would have never said a damn word. Oh, probably not. You know, and I think him going, you know, this is it. This this is what's going on. I think that made people go, this is something we need to deal with. You know, because unfortunately, all the people that had the disease before that were in the counterculture or, you know, things like that. And they were kind of toss away people. Mm-hmm. But Freddie was that first guy that wasn't that toss away guy. Was he really the first? I mean, Rock Hudson was another one, wasn't Rock he? Rock Hudson was, but Rock Hudson never admitted to it while he was alive. That's true. I suppose, yeah, that's right. I mean... You know. And in fact, I don't think we found out about Rock Hudson until years later. Uh, could have been, yeah. But, I mean, you know, there were there were other guys at that time, too. The guy who played Mike Brady. I can't think of his name right now. Oh, God. I know who you're talking about. I can't remember that. But he either. died of AIDS, you know, in that in that same time period and stuff, but... Anyway, this song, it just, to me, it's its the theater, it's the whole wrap-up with Queen, the whole, you know, it, it's everything. It's an eight. Okay. So, that actually finishes out the list. So wow. that was your 14 songs that you picked for your birthday list. Yay, me! But, alright, man, I thank you for indulging me. And we'll do the same for you in a few weeks here, because your birthday's coming up as well. It is. But, let's go ahead and wrap this damn thing up. We already did the, uh... The, um, we finished up with the trivia already. The trivia already. So we want to thank you for listening. And as always, if you want to reach out to us, let us know what you think of this episode or any of our other episodes. There's a few easy ways you can do that. First, you can reach us on email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. And if you're on Facebook, you can find us there as well at POI Network or at Musically Challenged. And, of course, there's our final way. And that would be the Twitter. And the Twitter is at mcpodcast17. Uh, if you want to send us a playlist, 14 songs, 14 different artists. If you have a theme, great. If not, that's cool, too. Just make sure that you can get us the songs if we need it. Um, you want to send us some love, send us some hate, whatever. We're there or anywhere else. I'm going to actually do a little edit on that. Ten songs. Okay, that's because right. Because at this point, we have all of our up through 70 picked. Starting with episode 70, to try to get this back to a more manageable time. To like an hour? Yeah, we'll just get it back to about an hour. We're going to actually down the number of songs we play, or that we talk about in each episode, to 10. So not a lot, but it'll it'll just bring it down a little bit. It'll make it a little more manageable, bite-sized thing. But we've already got all our music picked and stuff through 70, so... Starting with, or actually starting with 70, mm-hmm. we will go down to that 10 format. You guys can let us know what you think of that, too, when that time comes. And if it just sticks, if you're like, no, you guys need to do 14 because this is too short of an episode, even though it's probably still going to be about an hour, great. We'll take that into consideration, yeah. probably even move it right back up. And hell, let's just put it this way, too. It's a lot less work for us. That's true. Less editing, less writing, things like that. So 
hey, maybe it's just a little hiatus of 14. We just need a 10, 10 song hiatus to 14. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.